0: Good morning. Please take out your Bibles and begin turning to John chapter 8, page 894, John chapter 8. Here at Woodside, we take very seriously the central importance of expository preaching. I am morally opposed to hipster, cool, topical sermon series. Um, I've had, I've almost contacted an acquaintance before because his sermon series are so ridiculous. Um, In one of those series, each sermon was based on a top 40 pop song. Uh, He did one sermon based around the Rascal Flatts song, Bless the Broken Road. If you've never heard of Rascal Flatts, you are blessed. (laughs) They are a terrible country group. Um, I had a dated a girl in college who made me go with her to a Rascal Flatts concert. Uh, I should have known right then. <laughs> this was not the one. But why in the world would you think that your sermon would be helped, contextualized, cool, and compelling by attaching it to a Rascal Flatts song? Right? Do we have that little faith in the power of God's living and active word? We are striving to have great faith and confidence in the power of God's living and active word. And so for this sermon series, we went with the title, John. It's just John. All kidding aside, we believe strongly in preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. Expository preaching means we simply want to expose you to God's powerful word. We want to open up that word, uh, bring out the meaning of that word, and then allow God to work through that word. And so, you can always know what the next sermon will be on because we simply move to the very next text in the book that we are working through. And so last week we finished John chapter 7, therefore we pick up this week in the very next text, John chapter 8 verse 12. Are you there yet? Page 894. Verse 12, All right? How is that the next? text What about that big giant paragraph that I am staring at at the top of the page What about John 753 through John 811 Great question We have to answer that question I wanted to just ignore it but I know we can't ignore it I have to explain Let's see that if we can do that in the course of a sermon I didn't want to take a whole week to explain why I'm not preaching a text I want to preach an actual text of God's word, but then also explain why I'm not preaching the text that comes before it. And so, heads up, this week week may be a little bit different, but it can hopefully help us better understand and appreciate the uniqueness and importance and authority of God's word. Because, listen, everything hangs on God's word, doesn't it? I don't think any of us quite appreciate the importance of the Scriptures. Without the Scriptures, we have nothing. We know nothing. We have spent weeks and weeks looking at the controversial claims of Christ, the staggering claims of Christ. And we have another one of them this morning. Jesus is again going to claim to be life. He is again going to claim that life is found only in following Him. And like any good preacher... Uh, Teacher, Christ is repetitive. John is repetitive. Therefore, I have to be repetitive in trying to convince you and compel you to come to the Christ who claims to be life itself. But how do we know those claims at all? Where do we hear of this Christ and his teaching at all? And it's only in the scriptures. And so everything depends upon the scriptures we have to be able to depend on the scriptures we have to be able to trust the scriptures and yet here i am skipping a passage that is included in your copy of god's word so what's going on here can we trust the scriptures that reveal to us the christ there is no more important question than that So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to start by considering the claim of verse 12. The next I am statement. I am the light of the world. That's a big one. So point one, follow the Christ who is light and live. That's the big idea. Follow the Christ who is light and live. But notice, as we're about to read this text, that the rest of the passage feels a little bit strange. It seems to have nothing to do with Christ as light as we would expect. The Pharisees ignore the specifics of Christ's claim, and they instead launch into an attack and an argument over the validity of Christ's witness. Your testimony is not true, they say. And that's ultimately what matters. Is his testimony true? And again, where do we find his testimony? Only in this word. And so... I think verses 13 through 20 provide us with a good opportunity to then step back and consider the problem of 753 and 8 through 11. So we're going to take those verses and step back and consider why I'm not preaching on those verses. So point number two, trust the witness of the word and see. That's it. It's just two points, but it's a lot and they are important points. So let's get moving. Can you trust God's word? I want to show you how those strange bracketed verses that I'm skipping can actually increase your trust in God's word. And then I want to show you the light and life of the Christ who is revealed in that trustworthy word. So let's read that word now. John chapter 8, picking up in verse 12, but we'll go back and address what comes before it later on. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. If you would bow with me, let's pause, let's pray, and let's ask for God to help us. Father, we have a tricky one uh, this morning. Father, we love your word. We are entirely dependent upon your word. And yet here we come to this spot that we don't often know exactly what to do with. I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would give me uh, much wisdom. Father, I pray that you would guide uh, this time and use this time. I pray that my words uh, would always be only in accordance with your word. I pray that Christ would be clear. I pray that he would be magnified and glorified. We ask uh, that you would show us him, show us Uh, Christ as light and life pray that we would see that uh, in him alone our everything is found and then father help us to understand your word how we got your word how precious it is to us how you preserved it for us father how we can trust it and and love it and live in light of the Christ who is revealed in it Um, father we have difficult things Um, apart from you we cannot accomplish these things so father please help me Please help the preaching of your word. Please help the hearing of your word as well. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, follow the Christ who is light and live. Right, so Jesus is added added again. Confrontational claims, right? absurdly audacious claims. But as we discussed last week, we sometimes struggle to feel the weight of of these claims, both because we're overly familiar with them. Yeah, light of the world, I've heard that. But also because we tend to not understand the Jewish context in which Jesus made such claims. I'll argue in a moment that what we're reading in verse 12 follows directly on the tales of what we read in 752. And if you remember last week, when we looked at 7, 32 through 52, we saw that there were these two outside sandwiching sections, 32 through 36, And 40 through 52, all about the response to Christ and his claims. It was the center that we focused on, verses 37 through 39, where we see Christ and those claims that they are responding to. And so setting aside all the asides and the responses, 8.12 just flows beautifully and naturally from 7.39. We read in verse 37, Christ's claim, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And as we saw last week, it's not just what Christ says. It's also when and where Christ says it that makes his claims so big and bold. We are, remember, chapter 7, verse 2, at the Jewish Feast of Booths. The biggest and most festive of the three Jewish feasts. And we saw last week how every day of this there was this elaborate water ritual. As they would parade out of the temple, they would fill up this big golden pitcher with water. They would parade back into the temple, march around the altar, sing, dance, cheer. And then they would pour out the water on the altar. Remember, the whole celebration was about God's provision for and his preservation of Israel during their Exodus wanderings. What did they need wandering in the desert? They needed Water. What did God provide for them supernaturally? Water out of the rock. And in so doing, he provided for them life. And this festive, joyous ceremony was celebrating that. And it was then looking forward to God's continuing provision and preservation of his people in the messianic kingdom to come. And it was in the midst of all that, this big, important, symbolic ceremony that Jesus stands up and says, come to me and drink. I am life. I'm the provision and preservation that you need. I am the giver and provider of the spirit that the water represents who is life. He stands up in front of one of their greatest national uh, celebrations and ceremonies and says, All that is about me. It's crazy, unless it's true. And so last week we get all this information about these festivals from the Jewish Mishnah. So I read that for you last week. It has this whole section devoted to this feast. And, it, and I read for you last week from the Mishnah It says, He who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never seen in his life joy. And so this, this is a joyous occasion. Jesus says, it's about me. I am joy. God is working for your joy, and that joy is found only in me. But in the Mishnah, directly following that big claim about the joy at the water ceremony, there's a description of another ceremony central to the feast at the time Of Christ. The Mishnah goes on to say that at night in the court of the women, right, this big outdoor space where the men and women could gather, that they would set up these four giant lamps, basically giant menorahs. They said they were 75 feet tall with these huge, massive bowls of gallons and gallons of oil on them, and they would light those. Every night. Some say it was one of the nights. Some people say it's every night. There's, there's debate about it. But the Mishnah says, Men of piety and good needs used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises. And countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and other instruments of music. And that's in the Jewish Mishnah. Now, I hate dancing. I can't dance. And I hate it. So I'm kind of morally opposed to dancing because it makes me look stupid. Um, But then here we see, there's all these things. David is dancing in the Old Testament. Here again is these these festive celebrations where the men are gathering and celebrating. Men and women are dancing, enjoying celebration. And it went on all night, it says. It would go all the way up until the sun came up. It even extravagantly claims that the lamps were so bright, uh, up so high on the hill at the top of the temple complex in Jerusalem that every courtyard in the city was bathed in its light. So here's this huge ceremony of the temple Lights, And it is likely that it is into that context that Jesus stands up and cries out, I am the light of the world. See those things? Me. See all that symbolism? All about me. And so it's, it's, an, it's another absurdly audacious claim. And if we better appreciated the symbolism of light throughout the Old Testament, we could better appreciate what he exactly is claiming. But don't forget context. When we think light, we probably think first back to the very beginning. It's pretty interesting. What are the very first words that God is recorded as speaking? Let there be light first thing god ever says in the scriptures is something about light and then what follows everything life follows he says light and then life rushes in but that's probably not what the symbol of these giant lamps was about and that's probably not what first jesus is referencing here remember this whole festival is about the exodus and it's about God's gracious rescue of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and then his, his faithful provision for Israel in the wilderness, in the desert. We've already seen the water ceremony. Life requires water. God provides water. But also, life requires light. And God provides light. Providentially, my devotional reading this week had me in Numbers. Leviticus gets a bad rap. Uh, numbers. <laughs> Numbers is the hard one. It's it's aptly named. It's just a whole lot of of numbers. But I was in it this week, and I read in chapter 9 as I'm working on this sermon. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent... After that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down there, the people of Israel camped. That then points us back to Exodus chapter 13, where we first see this phenomenon. God led the people around by the way of the wilderness, Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord, right, the cloud is symbolizing, representing the Lord, his glory. It says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. That's what the light ceremony was about, which makes even more sense of what follows Christ's claim. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As Israel was led by and followed the Lord in the pillar of light, so Christ claims to be that for us. He is the light and all that that entails, which is just more than we can cover in one sermon. Now first, this is maybe more of an interesting aside only to me, but think back to these last three chapters. Going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 6, we saw that the verses right before that referenced Moses... And then we saw Jesus going up on a mountain during the Passover and then he feeds everyone with bread from heaven. And all kinds of alerts, Exodus symbolism, John is telling us what he is doing. Then Jesus walked on water which is probably a reference to the crossing of the Red Sea. Then they argued about the manna of the Exodus when Jesus claims to be the bread of life. Then in chapter 7, we saw the water festival, celebrating God's miraculous provision of water. Jesus invites all to come to him and drink. And now in chapter 8, we have the pillar of fire, the light, and Jesus says that he is the light. Remember how much John loves his Old Testament. You cannot understand John's writings without The Old Testament. John loves to situate everything in the context of the Old Testament. He is intentionally taking all of these central Old Testament symbols. Remember, the Exodus was the event of the Old Testament. And John is showing us how all of them ultimately foreshadowed and pointed to and found their fulfillment in Christ. He is the true and better Exodus. He is the true and better manna. He is the true and better water. He is the true and better. So the Exodus, the central event of the Old Testament, was about the redemption of God's people and light was a central symbol of that. Jesus is the redemption of God's people. He is the light. The creation, the other central event... ...of the Old Testament was about the creation of God's people. Uh, Light was a central symbol of that. And we've just seen that Jesus is the creator of God's people. Jesus is the light. And so, whereas he is intentionally picking up on the pillar of light in the Exodus... ...I think he must also be claiming to be the fulfillment of all... ...that the symbol of light represents more generally. John just talks too much about light... For Jesus not to be picking up on this uh, light uh, in the Greek is the word phos. John uses this word 23 times more than twice as many as any other book. We all now take photos right from this Greek word phos and we take them on our phones from the Greek word phone, right sound or voice phos phone, But phos light is one of John's main themes. We are in the heart of Christ's claim to be the Redeemer, but John started us off the whole book with the claim that Christ is the Creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. We've just been seeing this theme over every single chapter. My, my New Testament professor in seminary, Kostenberger, he, said, he argues that every single chapter in the first uh, part of John, the first 12 chapters, is about life. That's the theme of, of every single chapter. And, it, and John gets a little repetitive again and again and again. Jesus is life, life, life. And that's good. We need that repetition. It's, it's an old Latin proverb. I've heard it many places. I just read it again in a running book of all places. I can't find the original source, but it's it's the phrase repetitio mater studiorum, which is often loosely translated as repetition is the mother of all learning. And John agrees. John must think we need to hear this again and again and again. Jesus isn't saying much different than what he just said in chapter 6. He's claiming to be life, and he's claiming to be that with a different symbol from a different perspective because we need this repetition. You must need to hear this again and again and again. And we have all demonstrated that we need to hear this again and again and again. As just this last week, we have all sought to find life in things apart from Christ, And so we need to keep being reminded of this truth. We need the repetition until we actually learn it. Well, here it is again. John's twin themes, light and life. Light is life. Life is symbolized by light. And Christ is claiming to be all of that for us, and in so doing, claiming to be everything for us. I am the light of the Word. Remember, John begins this whole book with the clear and confrontational claim that this Christ, this man, this this Jewish carpenter is God himself. And then he keeps repeatedly making that claim and substantiating that claim. And that's what Christ is doing here. Not I will show you the light or teach you the light or point you to the light, but I am the light. And remember the significance of this construction. I am. Am. Remember in the Greek, ego, I me. It's the exact same thing we saw back in chapter six thirty-five. Uh, grammatically, in, in the Greek, it's 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 a bit of a strange construction and it's a bit redundant. Ego is the first person pronoun. I. I am is the first person singular verb, which means I am. So literally Jesus says I, I am. <laughs> Generally, you would just use one or the other. Jesus uses both. Remember, John gives us seven of these unique sayings. Seven I am's, followed by a predicate. Uh, the, The predicate is the second part of a sentence that's telling us something about the subject. And so Jesus, who is the subject, says, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the vine. Seven times Jesus takes this strange construction, I am, and this is number two. And everyone agrees, basically, that all of these must be an intentional reference all the way back to Exodus 3.14, where God himself reveals himself, his name to Moses as I am. He does it, remember, in a burning bush, flames, fire, light. Jesus is just claiming all of that for himself. I am. I am God. I am light. Because we just read, both in our call to worship and in our scripture reading, that God is light in the Old Testament. Psalm 27:1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm thirty-six nine, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And Jesus As the God who is, or God as the God who is, as I am, is also the God who speaks, and thus he being light, makes his word light. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. So Christ, the word of God, with God, God claims that all for himself. He's taking all of the light symbolism in the Old Testament, all that that represents and Christ is saying all of that I am. and so much more. Maybe, you know, it's just hard to get the weight and the significance of what he's claiming. Maybe we would be helped in understanding this if we stepped back and considered light's opposite for a second. Consider again what Christ says. Look at the rest of what he says. He says, I am light, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Well, what is darkness? Darkness is another important theme in the Old Testament. You could jot these down. I don't want to spend too long here. Jot these down and you can go back and look at them. What is darkness in the Old Testament? What does it represent? How about Psalm 82.5, talking about the wicked? They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All right, so darkness is ignorance. It's one of the first things we see in the Old Testament. Darkness is a lack of knowledge or understanding. Ignorance. Speaking of the wicked, how about Proverbs 4 19? The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. Proverbs 2 13. They walk in the way of darkness and rejoice in doing evil. Right, so darkness is wickedness, darkness is evil. So ignorance, wickedness. How about Isaiah 8 22? And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Well, darkness there is distress, it's it's anguish. Let's go with misery. Darkness is misery. Speaking of distress and anguish, how about Zephaniah 1:15? A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. What day? What day is he talking about? Matthew twenty-two thirteen. 13.
1: Bind him hand
0: and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That day is judgment day. Darkness is judgment. And then how about Luke 179 which talks about those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of Darkness is death. I mean, there's five. I'm sure there's more in the Old Testament. There's a very quick summary of what darkness represents. Ignorance, wickedness, misery, judgment, death. Light, then, as darkness is opposite. Christ, then, as the (laughs) antithesis of all of that. As light, Christ is knowledge, goodness, joyfulness, justification, and life. And so what Jesus is claiming here is huge. He says, follow me, and you will never walk in the first list. Ignorance, wickedness, misery, judgment, and death, and you will always walk in the second list. Knowledge, goodness, joyfulness, justification, and life. Why is this so difficult for us, right? Who in their right mind would choose the first list? Who would choose death over life? Well, all of us. Of course, that is what all of us did. This is the universal human condition. John three nineteen: the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And here we see so much just the, the stupidity of sin. Sin is utterly irrational. This whole book is about life. Christ as life. Every one of those seven I am statements are about Christ as life. His claim here to be light is a claim to be life. And then in following him, we will have the light of life. We will experience knowledge, goodness, joyfulness, justification, and life. And yet we so frequently say, no thanks. Let me try ignorance, wickedness, misery, judgment, and death. And that's what we're saying every time we choose sin over him. Why do we do that? There's lots of reasons. Ultimately, at least in part, it's because we don't believe him. It's because we don't trust him. So much of our lives are oriented around self. I, 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 me, 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 I want, I need, or whatever. When what we're seeing here is that life is truly only oriented around Jesus, I am. So I am is what I need, and yet so frequently what I live and act like is that I need something entirely different. No thanks, Jesus. That can't be it. I've got to try this thing over here. Why would I ever do that? Only because I don't yet fully trust him. Only because I I don't yet fully trust that he is good and true, and all that he says is good and true. Listen, that's really what the rest of this text is about. Let's look at it. Point number two. Trust the witness of the word and see. Let's see if I can pull this off and tie this together. I'm not sure that I can. I'm not sure that I have. But let's, let's try. Look at the text. Look at verses 13 through 20. They don't feel particularly connected to verse 12 at first. They are, of course. Jesus has just made his bold claim. I am the light of the world. I am light. But then there's no other mention or discussion of the specifics of that claim in the following verses. Jesus says nothing else about light in the whole rest of chapter 8. Now, I think that chapter 9 will be a demonstration and confirmation of his claim as Jesus heals the man born blind. He's in darkness. He's blind. God gives him sight. Uh, Christ gives him light. But before that, instead of light, the discussion and debate that follows uh, his claim is over the validity or the truth, or the testimony, or his witness. The Pharisees are attacking and questioning Christ's authority. Why should we listen to you? Can we trust you? Look over the text. Look at the repetition. Remember, what you see there in the English, bearing witness and testimony, in the Greek it's all the same word. It kind of disguises how much repetition is going on here. Noun, verb, seven times. In these verses, in verses 13 through 18, we have this one word, witness or bearing witness. And we've seen this. This is, again, another one of John's main themes. A witness is that which gives evidence or proof. Witness establishes truth. It is a declaration or affirmation of reason or evidence to the truth of something. And we should trust truth. Therefore, witness ...that affirms or confirms truth is really, really important. So they say in verse 13, you're bearing witness about yourself, therefore your witness is not true. Thus, what they're saying is, we will not trust you because your witness is not true. We've seen this argument back in chapter 5, verse 30. Jewish law required the testimony of two or three witnesses for the confirmation of a claim. There, Jesus then provides them the various witnesses that confirm his claims. But here in verse 14, he defends the truth of his claim, regardless of other witnesses. Look at what he does by first. He points to his heavenly origin and his heavenly destination. He says in verse 14, I'm God. I come from heaven. I am going to heaven. Therefore, if I were alone, testifying to myself, it wouldn't matter. Because my testimony is utterly unique. You cannot question me. You know neither where I come from or where I am going. But then second, in verse 15, he points out that their judgments are false. Because of what they do not know. And thus they judge wrongly. They judge based upon appearance only. Jesus does not judge like they judge. But 16 through 18, he does judge. Judge His judgments and his testimony about himself are true because not only does he bear witness about himself, but the Father also bears witness about him. So Jesus says there are two witnesses confirming the truth of Christ's claim. Because of the utterly unique identity of Christ, the Son of God, from the Father, perfectly one with the Father, his testimony confirmed by the Father, all his claims are true and unassailable witness is that which gives evidence or proof witness establishes truth so what better witness do you want than the witness of both the father and the son the first person of the trinity the second person of the trinity god himself to the truth of christ's claim and so these verses which could possibly seem unrelated to verse 12 are not at all They are Christ Himself giving you the reason why you should believe the truth of His claims. Believe me because I'm God. Believe me because of what I do. Believe me because the Father confirms my testimony. Here is why you should trust Him. But, question where do we find these claims of Christ that we are to trust and live? It's only in the Word. It is only in your Bibles. And so again, I just saw at the beginning, that means that the Word is everything. Everything depends upon the Word and the trustworthiness of that Word. Just as Christ has given us witness, reason why we should trust the truth of His claims, well, we also need witness, we need reason why we should trust the truth of the Bible. There's nothing more important than the trustworthiness of the Bible. And yet, I just told you that a large text that is contained in your Bible, 753 through 811, is not part of the Bible. Doesn't that just blow up any confidence that we can have in God's Word? Didn't I just give you great witness, great evidence why you can't trust God's Word? Well, not at all. In fact, I think it's the exact Opposite. So, we've got, to t- we've got to discuss this. Go back with me for a second to the year 2002. It's almost 20 years ago. Where were you 20 years ago? That makes me feel old. Uh, I'm a freshman in college at the time. Uh, my only concerns are Halo 2, uh, intramural sports and girls, probably. I'm at the University of North Carolina. I have mentioned before my New Testament professor, Bart Ehrman probably the most famous or infamous New Testament scholar in the world. But in 2002, as an 18-year-old kid, I knew nothing about Bart Ehrman. Most people didn't know anything about Bart Ehrman at that time. But Ehrman's big break would come in 2006 with the release of his best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus, which consisted largely of the content of that class, Introduction to the New Testament, that I unknowingly sat down in on that fateful I don't remember much from most of the dozens classes that I took in college. I told you before I mentioned my first history class because that's where I first laid eyes on Melissa. Um, and then I also remember much from this class because it was such an impactful class. Bart Ehrman is a charismatic, compelling speaker. He's good at what he does, and he has a very compelling story. Formerly a professing uh, evangelical Christian, went to Moody Bible Institute, then went into Wheaton College, who then deconverted... Supposedly, he says, because of his study of the New Testament documents and his realization that there are errors in the text. I've actually heard Erman tell two different deconversion stories, and I've never heard anyone point that out to him and that he's being inconsistent here. But I think he, he uses whichever story best serves his purposes at that moment. But half the time he claims it's because of the errors in the text. But I had no idea what I was getting into when I sat down. In that class. I grew up in church. Uh, I was a good pastor's kid. I had read the Bible. I professed to believe. Thought I knew my stuff. But I had heard nothing about what Ermine dropped on us in that first class. It was a bit staggering at first. It wrecks many people. But God was very gracious uh, to me through that class. So first class. I'm sitting there uh, in a classroom of four or five hundred students. Don't forget that we are in the Bible Belt. Uh, Most of the kids in that class are at least culturally Christian, and Ehrman knows that. And Ehrman knows what he's doing. He starts off the whole class brilliantly. Raise your hands. How many of you believe that the Bible is God's word? And almost the whole room, all the hands go up. Everybody's kind of looking around and seeing, you know, everybody's hands are up. We're all good southern cultural Christians. So my hand is up as well. And he says, all right, I can't do his voice. He's kind of got this squeaky, I try to do it, I'm not going to try to do it. It's embarrassing. He says, all right, hands down. He continues. Then he says, how many of you have actually read the whole Bible from beginning to end? Oh, awkward silence. <laughs> awkward. <laughs> Significantly, everybody kind of sits down, kind of peeks around. There's a handful of hands are up. My hand was, was not up. But Ehrman's hand was very clearly up. It was was an effective and humbling point from this hater of Christ at the outset of this whole class. You guys say that you believe that the Bible is God's word and you haven't even read it. I don't believe it's God's word. And I've read it and studied it far more than any of you. Ouch. But it's subtle implication. Listen to what he's doing. Listen to the groundwork that he's laying. What is he saying? He's saying, I know this better than you do. I'm an expert at this. I'm an authority on this book trust me listen to me you don't know it like i know it so listen to me and then ermine proceeds in that first class to give an overview of why we should not why we cannot believe why we cannot trust that the bible is god's word why not why not come on use your brains context why not because of this text (laughs) this is this is what he starts with he starts with this text uh, one of Ehrman's first scholarly works back in the 80s was an article titled Jesus and the Adulteress and how just undeniably true it is that this text was not originally part of John's Gospel. And Ehrman thinks he's dropping some bomb. Like, oh, look, it's not... A Everyone already knew this. This is Ehrman's specialty to tell you things and act like things that only he knows which aren't true. But then Ehrman takes this text as the basis for his argument for why you cannot trust the Bible. I want to take this text for the specific reason of why you can trust the Bible. But that requires uh, us knowing a little bit about how we got our Bibles. So I have to be brief here, but I hope that this will help explain the skipped text. And my goal with this is to further bolster your trust in God's Word. I can't just skip over a text without addressing it. So here's my attempt to explain what it is that we're doing and why. And it is because I didn't know any of this stuff. When I was a kid at 18, that I had a really hard time at the beginning of Erman's class. Do you know how you got the Bible that you are holding there in your hands? We don't think much about this. Right? We just assume that God inspired it in good old King James English in 1611, right? Here's, here it is. Right? Here is God's word. Well, that's silly. All right, you are holding a translation in English, or I had in Italian, but Francesca's not here. She reads from the Italian. Whatever language you are reading it in, you are reading a translation of the Bible. We're going to stick with the New Testament for this morning. The New Testament was not written in any of these languages, but was written about 2,000 years ago in Koine Greek. And guess what? Armin loves this. We do not have a single original manuscript of any of those 27 books. Is that a problem? Not at all, actually. Actually, it's a good thing. We would be parading it down Roosevelt Avenue and worshiping it and and bowing down to it if we had the originals. But if we don't have the originals, how can we know what the originals said? Copies. We have copies and copies and copies. And this is getting into what is called textual criticism. It sounds negative. It's not. This is simply the science of reading ancient manuscripts to determine what they originally said. And when it comes to ancient manuscripts, nothing. Compares to the New Testament. In my Latin classes in college, we had to read part of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. No one questioned the accuracy of that text. No one questions that we have what Caesar wrote. And we have only ten manuscripts total of Caesar's Gallic Wars. The earliest manuscript we have of his text is dated to 900 A.D., a thousand years after Caesar wrote it. Ten manuscripts. A 1,000 years after the original, we have thousands and thousands of New Testament manuscripts, approaching 6,000 manuscripts, the earliest of which date to only a few years after John finished writing the book of Revelation. And so, we have this abundance of information, this abundance, overwhelming manuscript evidence. How do we figure out what the originals say? Again, it's pretty simple. We lay out those thousands of manuscripts and we compare them. But when we do that, we do find differences in those manuscripts. And this is what Ehrman loves to say caused him to believe that he could not believe the word. I think he's wrong. I think he's lying. Um, but this is what he says. Uh, Ehrman loves big intimidating numbers, and so in his first class and also in his book, Misquoting Jesus, he'll just drop the bomb and claim that there are over 400,000 errors in the New Testament manuscripts. That sounds overwhelming. <laughs> There's no way we can trust something with 400,000 errors. And guess what the biggest of these question marks is? John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. So what do we do? Why are there differences? Why are these supposed Errors. Well, it's because of how the text is transmitted. It's because of the long and painstakingly difficult process of copying texts. Think with me for a moment. Thinking exercise. The book of Hebrews is six thousand eight hundred ninety-seven words. This sermon, man, I got really close. This sermon, all this right here, uh, last right before I printed is six thousand eight hundred sixty-six words, right? So Hebrews only beat me by like 31 words. Uh, So this is pretty long. Same as the book of Hebrews. So I I know you're thinking, that yeah, that that is long. Um, Just just (laughs) bear with me. We're almost, we're almost there. But imagine if I were to take this text and all almost 7,000 words of this text and I hand it right here to Sam and I say, here you go, Sam, take this, head upstairs. I need you to hole up in the classroom. I need you to take out your pencil and I need you to copy my whole manuscript, by hand. Have fun. First off, it's going to take Sam lots of hours and lots of concentration. So what would happen? Well, Sam would get bored. Uh, Sam would get tired. Sam would skip some words accidentally. Sam would misspell some words. Uh, Sam probably has superior grammar to me, so maybe he'd unthinkingly correct some of my bad grammar. Faith may walk into the room, and Sam would get distracted, and he'd look up, and then when we went back down, he'd skip a line, uh, and then he'd move on, he, he missed that line. But he, he, he works at it, he spends his hours, and he finishes. And he produces his copy of my manuscript. And, and what does he have there? A fairly accurate copy of my manuscript with a few minor errors here and there. So, the same, thing, same thing, I did the same thing with, with Nicole right here. I said, No, here's my manuscript, now you go and make your copy would probably be a little better than Sam's, let's be honest, right? English teacher, probably a little more patient and and accurate with the words. Um, But look, and then, let's say, I then take my text, my two manuscripts, originals, and I burn them. They're gone. We don't have them. And then these two take their manuscripts, we go now, we go to Marjorie, we go to Jeremy, and the text passes through the whole room. And you all take the text before you, and you all make your own copy of that text. What do we now have? How many people? What was the count today? 80-some people? We have about 80 people uh, in this room. We now have 80 different manuscripts that now all have minor differences here and there. But the originals are gone. What do we do? Do we have any hope? Yes, of course. What, what, What do we do? Textual criticism. We lay the 80 copies down side by side, and we compare them to accurately sort out the original. Say we have 80 copies, and two spell one word one way, but the other 78 spell the word the other way. We know that the 78 are the correct one, and these two just made a spelling error. So we can set that aside, know that's not the word, and know that this is the word here. And then we do that word by word, line by line, and we can figure out what my manuscript says uh, to great accuracy. We can pick out the typos and the errors, and we can get within like 99% accuracy of the original Text. There are actually scholars that will come into a church and do this for us. Like you can spend a couple of hours, they'll start with a text, they'll only use like 100 or 200 words, and then they'll demonstrate this whole thing for us to show us how much we can trust our manuscripts. What does that have to do with John chapter 8? Well, it's pretty simple. The story of John, the first part of John chapter 8 doesn't show up in any of our oldest and best Greek manuscripts and generally in textual criticism the rule is the older the better the closer to the original the better so say that we're now going through all of our manuscripts trying to come up with the original say we get to like manuscript number 20 say we get to melissa's manuscript and all of a sudden there's these couple lines about baby vera now she hasn't come yet and we're praying and waiting and matt's so impatient and uh, why can't he just be more patient and god needs to teach us patience through this thing we say "Wait, wait a second that wasn't in any of the other earlier manuscripts. But what would we find in the later manuscripts? we find those same lines in all of the following manuscripts. But as we worked back through, we would know what happened. Melissa must have added that story. It wasn't part of the original because none of these people have that story. It doesn't show up until we get to her. That's exactly what happens with this story. You see it summarized there in the brackets at the top of your page. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 uh, through 811. I think it's kind of ironic. Uh, The the most suspect text in our Bibles, least witnessed by the manuscript evidence, was inserted prior to a section on the importance of witness and testimony. But the point is, the manuscript evidence demonstrates almost without question. There, There are basically no scholars that think this text is original christian scholars this text was inserted um, much later sometime and thus it was not a part of john's original work there's like a, the, the texts are uh, just like the summary evidence is these verses are completely absent from all the oldest manuscripts it all of a sudden just pops up in the fifth century at like over 300 years after john wrote so what's going on there and the end? where is the text it's not there when it does start to slowly show up in later manuscripts, it shows up in five different places. It shows up here. It shows up in a couple different spots in chapter 7. It shows up at the end of John in some manuscripts. It shows up in Luke in some manuscripts. All right, so again, we just know that there's something unstable and weird going on um, with this text. It's full of words that John doesn't use anywhere else in his writings. And the Greek experts say that its style is very unlike John. And again, it just interrupts the flow of the text. This story reads perfectly without this insertion. It just flows right naturally into Jesus makes his claim about being um, the, the, the water. Uh, then they argue about him. And then again, Jesus then makes his claim about the light. And they argue with him. Right? The text just isn't there. None of the, there's not a single Greek church father who mentions this text for the first thousand years of church history. Because it's not there. And on and on and on we could go. So, this feels strange. And I'm sure this feels really strange uh, to some of you. This took me a long time to get my mind around this. But this is not about taking something out of God's word. It's about rightly recognizing that something that was never part of God's inspired and errant word should be there to begin with. But the beauty of this is that I believe that this should actually increase our trust in God's word. How is that possible? How could you say that? Well, because this is, those brackets there are evidence that God has graciously and providentially preserved for us so many thousands of manuscripts that we can get to great, with great confidence and accuracy get to what his original word says. We have 10 of Caesar. We have almost 6,000 of the New Testament. And so Ehrman's claim That there are 400,000 errors in the New Testament manuscripts is dumb and deceitful. Basically, all of them are minuscule and minor little typos and misspellings passed down the line. And then he catches them and he counts them for each time it it is passed down. He's being just disingenuous with his numbers. Another scholar humorously went through Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, and found 12 typos and then multiplied it out by the 100,000 copies that had been sold of the book at the time, and argued, using Ehrman's same logic, that his own book had 1.6 million errors. Right. Yeah, it's just silly. It's stupid. Ehrman is wrong. And by the grace of God, as I started to study and understand and learn about textual criticism and learn about the manuscript evidence and learn about the Bible, his class actually didn't decrease my trust in God's word, Oh, but it greatly increased my trust in God's word. And I think the existence of those brackets should also increase your trust in God's word. We know what the originals say. We have God's word. It's beautiful how God has preserved the text and has given us this science and this ability to say, look, this is what was written 2,000 years ago, and we can know that with great confidence. Christ provides great witness to the truth and trustworthiness of his claims. In verses 13 through 20, God provides for us great witness to the truth and trustworthiness of his word in the thousands of manuscripts he preserved for us so that we could know that word. You can trust your Bible, which is important because everything hangs on its witness. Because in its pages is revealed to us the Christ who is light and life. Trust the witness of the word and see him. See the light. See Christ. Because, listen, ultimately, as helpful as it is to know how we got our Bibles and the manuscript evidence that encourage us to trust God's word. I mean, we can't just skip a text and I not explain why we're skipping a text. But ultimately that is not the witness that our faith is founded upon. Trust the word, come to it humbly, so that in it you can see and savor the Christ who is self-attesting, right? The the Christ who shines forth from these pages. And honestly, I I don't spend a ton of time anymore on all the apologetic stuff, all the textual criticism. It's, It's good to know. It's kind of fun. It's helpful, but it's never decisive. Ultimately, all I want to do is to bring people into contact with the Christ who is contained in this word. Ultimately, I know that all of my arguments uh, are secondary. Ultimately, I know that my only hope and anyone's only hope is to see the Christ contained in these pages and then, by the grace of God, live. Ultimately, it is the person and work of Christ that is our apologetic. No one is like this Christ. No one could create this Christ. No one else can burst onto the scene and claim, I am the light of the world, I am God, I am life, and convince countless numbers of people to give their entire lives uh, to him. No one else claims to be God and life and then becomes man and dies for sinners like me. Wretched, weak sinners like me. There is nothing like the good news of the gospel of Christ coming to live and die in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. You have a great sin problem. You have an eternal death problem. Christ is the only gracious and glorious solution. So he says follow me believe in me and so my encouragement to you is yes explore these things Uh, yes know why you can trust uh, your bible yes be ready to give an answer but ultimately our answer is christ our argument is christ look at him listen to him he bears witness about himself and his witness is true For his is a self-validating witness, right? Consider light. I don't have to look at Be like, look, I can see. No, it's just self-attesting witness. There's the light. You can see it. And Christ is like that. Look. Trust the witness of the word and then look at the Christ in that word. And if you don't see it yet, then ask. Cry out for help. Tell God that you want to see and ask his spirit to help you to see. And listen, if you have seen it, if you have been saved by the grace of God and yet you're really struggling to see it right now, really struggling to believe, welcome to the club. Right, we've all been there. My encouragement to you is the same. Ask. I right, Cry out for help. This is a prayer that God loves answer God I want to see God I need your spirit to help me to see I am not seeing right now please help me to see and then ask again and again and again and do not let go until you see and have the light of life and rest and rejoice and it's nowhere else Christ claims that life is found only in him so stop looking for life anywhere else follow him and live Trust his trustworthy word and see. Witness is everything. And we have all the witness that we need contained in God's word. Second Corinthians four eighteen, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Ask him to give you the eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you are patient with us, your people. Thank you that you are kind to us. Father, that kindness is demonstrated to us in the Word, the Bible that we have before us, that you have so faithfully preserved for these 2,000 years. Father, thank you for all the evidence. All the copying, all the recording, all the science that goes into telling us that we have your word, Lord. We can know what you originally inspired and gave um, through your apostles. Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the hearts to trust that word. Father, ultimately, what we want to see is Christ. Father, he is our answer. Um, He is our apologetic. He is our everything. And so we ask that you would maybe even just use silly exercises trying to understand the the trustworthiness of your word ultimately, Father, to lead us to trust your Christ and to love him and to look to him and to depend upon him. Father, forgive us for how quick we are to trust in ourselves elsewhere. Father, help us to see these great claims that he makes about himself. Help us to see the goodness of what he claims. And Father, give us uh, the will and the desire to follow him, uh, to seek him, to find life uh, in him. Father, only you uh, can do this in us by your spirit. And so I ask now that you would do that. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.